This morning is Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young, li <coughs> the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pat. I know Jeremy's just getting out of Christmas, but he forgot to, uh, for us to lead uh, passing the peace to Murphy, which we wouldn't want her to feel left out. So we're all gonna stretch our legs again, stand up, turn to the camera, and after three, say the peace of the Lord be with you, Murphy. One, two, three, the peace of the Lord be with you, Murphy. Thank you. Let me pray, and then I will think about uh, our passage today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm that has been uh, so influential for us as a congregation over several years now. But uh, we pray that as we begin 2022, that you would give us fresh eyes for it, for its invitation from you to taste and see your goodness this year. Help us to hear what King David wrote as applied to our lives by your Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I've mentioned what I'm about to say often enough over recent years that some of you could probably say it along with me, but some of you haven't heard me say this, so it's 
worth mentioning at least one more time that there are three ways in which the New Testament completes the sentence that begins, the Son of Man came. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Those two statements, sentences are statements of purpose. Uh, they tell us what Jesus came to do, what he came to achieve. But here's a third way that the New Testament completes that sentence in Luke 7, verse 34, which says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That third way is different because it's really a statement of method. It addresses the question, how did Jesus come? And the answer is, he came eating and drinking. I love that statement. I would hope that if, even if you're not here as a follower of Jesus Christ yet in your life, you would look at a statement like that and say, there's someone I would like to get to know. He came eating and drinking. And if you're a Christian and you're wondering, how do I do mission in the Christian life, outreach, community, build community? Isn't there a simplicity to that statement that is incredibly liberating? That the way you do it, if we do it the way Jesus did it, is we do it as we come eating and drinking. So next week, we're going to, Jeremy and I are going to be starting a six-part series looking at stories of Jesus eating with people. To do that, we'll be spending time in Luke's gospel as Luke focuses more on incidents of Jesus eating with people than in any of the other gospels. But before we get into Luke's gospel, we're going to prime the pump a little bit today by thinking this morning about this Old Testament passage that we could almost say is a, like a dinner invitation or at least a feasting invitation from King David. This psalm, which Pat read for us, has, as I intimated in the opening prayer to the sermon, has given to us here at PCKS the basis of our vision statement for the last decade or so. The vision statement comes from verse 8 of Psalm 34. It's the first thing you see when you go onto our website. Our vision is that all who enter into this place or enter into life with us would taste and see that the Lord is good. And the significance of the language of, of tasting here cannot be overstated. Jonathan Edwards' quote in the bulletin this morning puts it well. The gist of the quote is this, that just as there is a difference between having a rational understanding that honey is sweet versus having an actual sense of its sweetness, so there's a difference between an understanding of God's goodness and an actual sense, a taste of his goodness. And our longing here at Kennet Presbyterian is to be a place where people taste his goodness, see his goodness, such that we're all drawn into a deeper relationship with him and with one another. But what's interesting here in Psalm 34 is that David's invitation uh, to us to taste and see God's goodness comes in the context of an entire psalm in which David seeks to provide a genuine personal recommendation of God to his readers. Indeed, David in this psalm provides us with a, a really helpful example as we start a new year of what a genuine gospel recommendation looks like as opposed to, shall we say, a sales pitch. Many of us are friends, co-workers, family members perhaps, who, when we start to speak to them uh, about the good news of Jesus, they, they sort of put up the communication shutters on the basis that we're just trying to sell them something and they're not interested. 
And in many instances, you can't blame them because much, of it, much evangelism today doesn't sound that much different than a sales pitch. But here in Psalm 34, David recommends, even promotes, but it's much more than a sales pitch. In the psalm, he says, you know, I was in real trouble and danger, but I've experienced the goodness of God in the most amazing way in my deliverance from danger. And so I so badly want to share that experience with other people who might be in the midst of troubles in their life too, so that they might also taste and see that the Lord is good, that I sought the Lord and he answered me, that this faith in God stuff really works and I would love for you to try it. So we want to tease out this morning how David presents his recommendation of God to us in this psalm. It comes in three stages. First of all, listen to me. Secondly, rejoice with me. Thirdly, learn from me all so that you might taste and see God's goodness. So firstly, David invites his audience to listen to him as he gives his personal testimony. Look, for example, at how he does this in verses four and six. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, many of the Psalms were not actually very clear as to what the context was for the Psalms composition, but this is one of those Psalms where we're given direction in that, in that regard, in the heading, because David's fears and troubles arose here in this Psalm at one of the most dangerous moments in his life, about which we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 to 15. David had been forced at that point to flee from the murderous rage of the then king of Israel, Saul, and at that point, David had used up all the resources he had. He's absolutely alone. He's in genuine danger. And in his, in his absolute desperation, he escapes to the only place where he was sure Saul would not capture him, which was the land of the Philistines. That's what you call a brassy move on the part of David. Because David was the one who had killed the Philistines' champion, Goliath. He was the one of whom the women of Israel sang. He has slain thousands of Philistines. So not surprisingly, when he crosses the Philistine border into Gath, he's immediately recognized, captured, and dragged off to see the king. No wonder he had fears. But David says he prayed. He probably prayed like he'd never prayed in his life before, and his prayers were answered. God delivered him. He saved him. It appears that as David prayed, God actually gave him the idea to pretend to be stark raving mad, which is not a usual answer to our prayers, but that's what he suggests. It seems to have suggested to David. So David, if you read in 1 Samuel 21, he goes into play acting mode. He starts foaming at the mouth. He starts rolling on the floor. He starts clawing at the furniture with his fingernails. And the king of Gath falls for it. The last thing he wants is a lunatic in the palace slobbering all over his expensive carpet. So he orders for David to be thrown out. David is released. He's freed. And so it's no wonder that David sings words like he does here in the opening of the psalm, verses 1 and 2. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. So this is the sort of psalm you would sing when a, a great weight is lifted off your shoulders or the day your exams 
are finally over, or the day you pass your driving test, or get the all clear from the doctor, or when you come out of that annual review at work that you've been dreading and it actually went really well. For David, in his context, it was this great escape. And all the glory, he says, was to go to God. That, this was a case of divine deliverance. David exclaims that he would never be frugal in his praise to God from that point on, that he was going to praise God morning, noon, and night, no matter what the circumstances. He says, listen to me. Do you hear what God has done for me? But David isn't happy just praising God on his own. He wants others to share in that experience. And so interspersed with his own praise and testimony in the psalm is this invitation to others to rejoice with him. Look, at, for example, at verses 2 to 5. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. David says, what I've experienced isn't just for me, it's for everyone who will turn humbly to God because he'll deliver you as well. In fact, he says, if you look to him, you'll be radiant, you'll be transformed. In Isaiah 60, the same word is used of a mother's face lighting up at the sight of her children, long given up for lost. That sense of joy and delight, he says, can be yours too. So David's saying, come on, everybody. This song isn't intended to be a solo. It's meant to be a chorus. Glorify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. You kind of get the feeling that if David had just received one of those satisfaction survey emails, you know, scale one to ten, how satisfied have you been with God's answer to your prayers? David would have said, well, can I go above ten on this one? Because in other words, David is off the scale here in terms of his satisfaction. He's not just sort of this satisfied customer here. He's a genuinely satisfied customer who's not just willing, but really eager, almost anxious to provide unsolicited testimony to God's goodness. Here is testimony that evolves effortlessly into personal recommendation. The author Keith Miller gives an example of what David uh, was doing uh, here in his book, A Habitation of Dragons. Miller recounts the story of a man called Joe. Joe had been in the same town as Keith Miller on one occasion. However, Joe was not there to hear Keith Miller speak uh, as uh, Miller was there to do. He was, Joe was there to see his mistress while pretending to be on a business trip. However, just as he got out of the car, his car to go into his mistress's apartment, three of his friends from his hometown actually bumped into him in, on the street. And they're like, Joe, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I'm just passing through, he lied. And he said, hey, great, why don't you come with us? We're going to hear these Christian businessmen speak. Come with us. And afraid that he'd kind of get, give himself away, Joe went with them, And as a result, he heard the gospel. And that night, he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And about a year later, Keith Miller received a letter from Joe. Joe explained how he had immediately put his faith to work. He'd ended his adulterous relationship. He was seeking to live to please God. And things were really so much better as a result. People were starting to notice a difference in his life. But like King David, Joe wanted to be a recommender, a promoter, to share the reason of his new joy with others. 
but he just didn't feel very accomplished in terms of explaining Christianity to others. So he wrote to Miller to see if Miller would come and visit Joe's town to speak to a group of people to whom Joe had started to talk about his new faith. Miller lived on the other side of the country to Joe. It seemed like a long way to travel to speak to a small group of Joe's friends, but he didn't want to discourage Joe, so he agreed to go. Miller's plane was late in arriving. He had to rush to the meeting place, more or less entered through a back door, went straight out onto the stage, and as he looked out over the audience, instead of the 10 to 20 business colleagues of Joe's that he was expecting to see, he saw a hall filled with 800 people crammed into every space possible. And here's what Keith Miller's conclusion from that experience was. He said, I realized in that moment that all the Christian promotions and programs, all the evangelistic campaigns, crusades in the world are virtually worthless to motivate people to become Christians unless they see some ordinary person like Joe finding new hope and a new way to live in Christ, and then they will listen. I imagine that Joe's line to his friends and his colleagues was not unlike David's here in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Come and experience what I've experienced. Come and taste. Come and see God's goodness. I don't want to keep this to myself. Rejoice with me, won't you? One of the things I think that Miller's story reminds us of is that people don't ultimately come to listen to a preacher because of his speaking gifts or clever sermons. They'll come to listen to a preacher because they see lives transformed in that preacher's congregation. You may be here today for the first time or watching for the first time. You're looking for a church or a place to think about Christianity. And when people come in here for the first time, they they don't just look up here at, at the preacher. They're looking around at all of us. If you're here for the first time, you're checking out how we treat each other. You'd be concerned if you saw someone here that you know from another context in your life who you know is not living an upright life at all, not living an honest life, who's, who's known for greed or gossip, who can't hold their temper. The fact is that people will be attracted to be part of our church family, not so much because of me or Jeremy, but because they see people who have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness and are invited to taste and see it for themselves. So as a church, we have both a responsibility and a high calling and a privilege to help one another taste and see the Lord's goodness and then to invite others to taste and see it themselves. But this helping one another taste and see is really important because there are some of us, perhaps many of us, perhaps most of us who would say, you know, that's all fine for the King Davids of the world, the Joes of the world, but I'm not sure I've had that kind of firsthand experience that you're talking about. For some of us, perhaps, our Christianity is still somewhat in the theory stage, the the head knowledge stage. We we know the stories. We know the overall gospel story. But to be honest, it, it, it sort of has a feel of a secondhand faith. We've picked it up from our parents or from our grandparents or from our spouses or maybe even from our children. But if we're honest, we've never really tasted it ourselves. We wouldn't put ourselves in the David category because while there's been some casual sampling along the way, there's been no real tasting such that we're eager to recommend God to other people. 
And if that's, that is you, let me encourage you to see 2022 as the opportunity for a fresh start to seek and to taste and see God's goodness, to take him at his word, to trust him for sure, to trust, really trust his promises. I mentioned this story before of a particular skyscraper office building that had been re, uh, recently renovated and completed. It was a, as a result of the architect's design, all the walls of the office building were made of glass. However, there was one group of employees who had to work on one of the top floors in this skyscraper who weren't happy with this whatsoever. To their way of thinking, it seemed that you would only have to lean against one of those fragile panes of glass and down you would go, and it was a long way down. So these employees actually went on strike. And the management, they're at a loss, they're at their wit's end. It's not exactly that they can change the structure of the building at this point. So they, they call in an engineer. And the engineer looks at the management, he looks at the windows, he looks at these employees sitting with their arms folded, you know, defiant in their seats, and then he has an idea. And he walks back the length of the office, he runs full steam at the window and launches himself at the glass, shoulder first, in a move that would have impressed any football co coach, bounces off the window, sore from the experience, but with the window intact. The man was an engineer. He knew the specifications of the glass. He knew that you could probably drive a truck at that glass and it would not break. But that was all still head knowledge. Not until his feet were off the ground and his shoulder was ramming against the glass did it move into sort of experiential or experimental uh, knowledge. And maybe some of us need to start charging the glass this year, spiritually speaking. That until you and I put God's word and his promises to the test, we haven't really embraced that, that word. We haven't really tasted. We haven't really seen that he's good. But once you have, you'll find that almost without paying attention, you become like a Joe and you want to help others to taste and see God's goodness too. So David says, listen to me. He says, rejoice with me. And then thirdly, he says, learn from me. Verses 11 to 15. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many, loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Back in verse 9, David had followed up his taste and see invitation with the command to fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. And it's almost as if at that point the men gathered around David said to him, what do you mean by fear the Lord? We've defined the fear of the Lord here over recent years as a trembling trust. If you want three T's, a transformational trembling trust. That is, it's a trust of God, but a God before whom we tremble because of his holiness, his perfection. But when you trust this sort of God, it transforms, it changes your life. But here in the second half of the psalm, David puts flesh on this fear of the Lord. He says, let me teach you about it. Teaching that involves content, which is God's word, because tasting and seeing may be experiential, but it's anchored to God's revelation of himself in his word. So as we model what it means to taste and see, when we model what it means to fear, we do it with our Bibles open. 
And that's not just my role, it's not just Jeremy's role, it's all of our roles. That God wants all of us to be able to say at some level to one another, learn from me. Not arrogantly, but in a way to help one another grow what God has been showing to us. There are two things I want to highlight from David's learned from me before we wrap things up. First of all, David wants us to understand that tasting the Lord's goodness leads to a commitment to God's ethical standards. You cannot claim to be close to the Lord, to enjoy the Lord, to taste his goodness, and at the same time defiantly be disobeying his commands in Scripture. The way that, Paul, that, that David puts it here is this. If you desire good, verse 12, then do good, verses 13 to 14. Tasting God's goodness will change how we talk. It will make us more truthful. It will change our behavior because those things go hand in hand. And then secondly, tasting the Lord's goodness means actually experiencing that God's face, his grace and his favor, is turned towards us. Verses 15 to 16, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But in contrast to God's stance towards those who reject him, for the one who trusts in God, this is a beautiful picture. God's eyes see even what is hidden from us. The things that we cannot see, God's eyes see. So that even before we call out to him with our needs, He's the kind of God who answers our heartfelt prayers before we say a word. And yet at the same time, his ears are open to us. He, he takes our prayers seriously. So this, in this amazing picture of his grace towards us, God's eyes see far more of our situation than we're aware of ourselves. And he can take care of it all on his own. And yet his ears still listen to our version of what we see going on around us. David says, learn from me. Tasting the Lord's goodness leads to a commitment to God's ethical standards, leads to experiencing that God's face is turned towards us. God's goodness to us is seen in so many ways. You and I have seen it in countless ways in 2021. Hopefully you're still seeing it as we start a new year. But Psalm 34 points us to the ultimate expression of goodness that each of us needs to taste and see. Look again at verse 8. Who taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In Hebrew poetry, the, the second phrase in a couplet often parallels the first or fleshes out the first. And, and this is certainly the case here. That is that those who taste and see God's goodness are those who have taken refuge in him. So that here, David moves us from God's rescue of, of himself from the king of Gath to now a bigger rescue that he describes at the end of the psalm, Psalm verses 21 to 22, where he says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The redemption, the rescue, the refuge in mind here is that which makes the difference, David says, between you and me being condemned and not being condemned. Notice here that the Lord's servants need rescued. It's not that we deserve God's blessing, that we're so morally upright that God is obliged to accept us in and of ourselves. We're the wicked 
in this psalm. We're the foes of the righteous. All of us by nature want to do things our own way, not God's way. And if we stay on that path of life, David says, we will without doubt face, face final condemnation. But those who seek rescue from wickedness and righteousness, rescue from sin and selfishness, rescue from pride and prejudice, those who do take refuge in God will not be condemned, he says. So what does this refuge in God look like for us? Listen again to these words that we looked at last month in our Advent series in Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The ultimate place to taste and see the Lord's goodness is at the cross of Jesus Christ because that's the only place of refuge there is from God's condemnation for our rebellion and sin. When David penned the opening words of verse 22, he could not have imagined the cost of that redemption of which he wrote because it would cost the life of the true son of David, the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ himself. This greater David would not be rescued, but would submit to crucifixion in order that we could be rescued. Would send Jesus to the condemnation of hell so that the banner hoisted over all who trust in Jesus is now no condemnation. No condemnation. So that if you don't know where to start to taste and see the Lord's goodness, start here. Start at the cross. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's goodness to us. One of the important features of Christmas in the Smith household is the traditional British Christmas pudding. They're not the easiest things to find around here, but over the years, with help from some of you, and now with Duncan living in the UK, we've been able to get at least one each year. So each Christmas day after the main course and our traditional family visit to Longwood Gardens, we, we indulge in the pudding. And this year, as usual, looked splendid, succulent, mouth-watering. You sensing it yet? But you know what they say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And it certainly was, delicious as ever. But you see, Christianity works on the same principle. The proof of the pudding's in the eating. The gospel might look good, and God's promises might sound great, but you have to taste it. So let me challenge you to at least one resolution for 2022. Every worthwhile journey begins with a first step. What one step could you take to begin to better taste and see God's goodness this year? Maybe it's soaking yourself in his word in a new way by beginning or resuming the daily prayer project or some other daily devotional. Maybe it's getting involved in one of our growth groups. Maybe it's signing up for our Hope Explored online course in February. Maybe, maybe it's taking God at his word in that one area of your life where you struggle so much and you just haven't trusted it. What will the one step be for you in 2022? Proof of the puddings in the eating. To taste and see how good God is this year. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you don't want just to fill our heads with knowledge. You want us to know you, to, to delight in you, to taste and see your goodness. Lord, we long as a congregation to be a people, a community, a place where people can come and, and experience and taste that goodness amongst us. But help us to taste it ourselves. Help us to grow in our experience of it in this coming year. Help us to work out what that one step would be at the beginning of this new year so that we might increase our taste and our sight of the very goodness of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.